Second Peter chapter two. My initial thought in preparing for this morning was that we would finish the chapter. But as you can tell, as I even start that sentence, that's not going to happen. So we're going to, as Jason said in an email this weekend, we're, we're going to pump the brakes here. And we're going to dedicate some time to what uh, Peter is saying. He, he spends a lot of time here talking about false teaching and false teachers. And so I don't want to just overlook it. It was easier in my flesh to think, well, let's just kind of skim through this. Everybody gets it. But I think when reflecting on more and more of the news articles that come out, we need to slow down here for a moment so that we can be equipped and prepared for, as Caleb said, an unpredictable world. Guys, there are things that are happening in our lifetime that I wonder what our grandparents, who are probably now gone, would have thought. They would have never thought we'd be arguing about what is a woman. They wouldn't. And, and yet, these are pressing issues of our day. And so we need to understand what it is that the Bible says about some of these things. So this week and next, we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, finish out chapter 2. But talking about some of these things, and I get it too. I'm studying this stuff, and it's not real, like, this isn't some of the fun parts of Scripture to study and dedicate time to. And yet, they're probably some of the most needed parts right now for us. And so I'm thankful for the sovereignty of God bringing us to these things. And I'm thankful, too, for John David stepping in last week to to preach. And he he shared some ways that we can spot false teaching, false teachers, false doctrine better. And, and really it echoed what we have been talking about in Second Peter chapter 2 specifically and what Jason talked with the kids about. The whole theme of chapter 2 is what? Truth matters. It, it really does. Truth, it, even the word, is almost being attacked in our culture because there is no objective truth anymore for a lot of people. Well, and you've heard it said, well, that's your truth. That's, that's not a thing. Like, truth is truth. It's truth for everyone all the time. This is what Jesus says. Think about John chapter 17. He says there is objective truth to hold on to, to know. He says, sanctify them in truth. And then what does he say? Your word is truth. So the Son of God says about the Father, he says, your word is truth. God's word, the Bible that you have is truth. Psalm 119, the author there says this in, in verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. The entirety of it. And every one of your righteous judgments, he says, endures forever. So just, this is the groundwork for where we're continuing on today in just saying there is objective, discernible, knowable truth. The Bible identifies it. Jesus identifies it as the word of God, scripture itself. And that scripture is going to endure forever. Peter's made it clear, the end of the first chapter and some of his previous writings, he said, these ideas that are included in the word of God, they're not like just cleverly divined or devised myths from men. These are written down by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their own words. It wasn't fairy tales. It was truth. And it wasn't just their truth. Guys, the word of God is not just your truth. Scripture is the truth for everyone. And guess what it all points to? Jesus. 
Scripture is the truth for everyone, and it points to Jesus. So whether a person likes it or not, or whether a person believes it or not, Scripture is true. 2 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, 4, 3 and 4, remind us, John talked about this last week. He said, the time is coming. (coughs) Excuse me. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And just as Jason prayed for these young kids, I pray the same for our church body, that we would not wander off into myths. I think the vast majority of people, if you ask them, will say, I want to know the truth. I think if you did a poll... Someone probably already has. But if, if you did a poll, people will say, I do. I want to know the truth. But the problem is when we're faced with a truth that we don't like and a lie that we do, what do we usually pick? The lie. Because it's easy. Because it's more comfortable. Because it doesn't put us out. It doesn't change the way that we live. We can keep on doing what we're doing when we believe the lie. And so in the first half of Second Peter chapter 2, Peter assured us that the Lord knows what to do. You can look back and see that. It says, he knows how to righteously judge the ungodly. And he also knows how to save the righteous person out of their trials. He sent his son as the rescuer, the one who himself is the truth. And in John 16, Jesus begins explaining who the Holy Spirit is. It's a really interesting chapter. He starts explaining who the Holy Spirit is to his disciples, and he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. Okay? So it's not as if Jesus left and took the truth with him. The Spirit who dwells in his people is the Spirit of truth. So that tells me that truth mattered to Jesus too. So much so, he said, it's better that I go. So the spirit of truth comes, he says there in John 16. The the reality is false teachers, false doctrine, lies about God, it's nothing new. Peter obviously was writing it to people in his day. Uh, Jeremiah warned Israel. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, of false prophets, of bad shepherds. But the people wouldn't listen. So in order to illustrate the judgment of God against the sin of preaching and teaching false truths in verses 4 through 10, the first half of 10 of the chapter, Peter gave us three examples of what happens. It was fallen angels, it was the ancient world, the days of Noah, and it was cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says these were examples of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And they illustrate the danger of false teachers and the effect that they have on the people, the people in the culture around them. So judgment is coming. It came for the angels. It came for the world who was plunged into sin in Noah's day. It came for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's coming now. And God knows what to do about it all. And what he does is just. The rest of chapter 2. Peter continues describing what we would call heretics, false teachers, and he uses different metaphors and descriptive language to kind of illustrate the threat that they are to to the Christian. And so let's read uh, verse 10, kind of the second half of verse 10 through verse 17. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
Whereas, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who lived, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Question for parents as we think about these things. Question for you parents. When your child does something wrong, you discipline them, right? Parents that love their kids discipline them. That's what Hebrews tells us. Okay, so we discipline them. Why do we discipline our kids? When when our kids mess up, and you could think of any number of failures that a child does, when they mess up, why do we discipline them? Well, I, I, I think I can answer for us as a parent myself. One of the reasons why I discipline my kids is so they don't think that the wrong thing they just did is okay, Right? We don't want them to get the impression by not disciplining bad behavior that their bad behavior is okay, that it might actually be good behavior. See, we're keeping them from understanding lies about truth when we discipline them. We keep them from understanding lies about God when we discipline them. So what happens, though, when we fail to correct that? Because we've all been there. We've all not corrected bad behavior when we should have. And what happens when we fail to do that? Well, our kid, because our nature is to push the limits of sin, right? Our kid takes it further than they did. So now, what I, what should have been disciplined as maybe a, a three on, if you're ranking these bad things, which you probably shouldn't do, but if it's a, if it's a three when we should have started disciplining it, now it's a five. And if we let that go, you can see how this trend progresses. And maybe that's happened in your own life. Maybe you've gotten away with something and you thought, well, that wasn't so bad. Now I can push it even further. You guys have probably heard uh, the name Jonathan Edwards, right? Famous preacher back in the 1700s. He was part of the Great Awakening in, uh, he preached in the New England area, and a- at age 38, in 1741, he preached probably one of the most famous sermons. You guys probably heard, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the title of the sermon that he preached. Um, that, was kind of, that sermon actually was kind of a catalyst for the First Great Awakening in that area. Um, despite the title, which is a little... Uh, maybe misgiving, um, it says it centers in the hands of an angry God. Despite calling God angry in the title of his sermon, it's actually a sermon of great hope. And I, if you've never read it, you can find it 
almost anywhere online nowadays. Uh, but it's, it's really of great hope. He, he preached that hope is found in turning from sin and in turning from the disastrous path of sin and turning to a proper understanding of God and turning to the proper object of the affections of our hearts, and that's Jesus Christ. Not just as a savior from sin, but a triumphant savior over sin. And this, this I just found out. It was actually an expositional sermon preached off of Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 that says, their foot shall slip in due time. So, he wanted to warn the people of the New England area in this sermon against being complacent and self-righteous. That was the point of his sermon. Hey, here is a great Savior, but if you maintain this pride and arrogance in your life, God's angry and judgment is coming. So when our kids begin to think that sin has no real consequences, they're in danger, right? And the danger is the same for all of us. No matter how old we are, when we get away with sin, sometimes for so long that we begin to assume, well, maybe there isn't even a God. Or maybe there is a God, but surely he doesn't care because something would have happened. He's never going to call us into account for our sin. But remember, what did Peter just say at the beginning of the chapter? God knows what to do with the unrighteous. He knows what to do with the righteous. So it's dangerous to think that we can outlive the judgment of God. Because none of us do. False doctrine leads people into all sorts of wrong beliefs. But the problem is that beliefs, especially wrong ones, don't stop just in your head. You know what I'm saying? False beliefs, wrong understanding of God doesn't just stop here. I quoted R.C. Sproul a couple of weeks ago, and he said, false doctrine produces ungodly living. That's what I'm getting at. That's the point. If you live your life based on your belief about God, and you believe him, and you trust him, and you love him, you will obey his commandments. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. But if you ignore God, if you deny his existence, you're going to live for yourself. So your lifestyle flows from the truth you believe. How you live your life, and I'm going to say that in different ways several different times this morning. How you live your life comes out of what you believe about God. And if you think about Romans 1 and some of the, the really applicable in today's society language that Paul uses about mankind, you really see that that's true truth played out. Romans 1, Paul makes crystal clear. He says that when a person willingly exchanges the truth of God for a lie, what follows? All kinds of immorality, especially sexual immorality, and all kinds of idol worship. Brothers and sisters, look around. That's our culture. People loving things more than God, certainly, even more than other human beings, with all kinds of immorality following. And that's why it's so important for you as a Christian to be a truth teller, to not be caught up in lies yourself, and to not be so timid that you never tell people the truth. 
Because it seems better not to get involved, doesn't it? You see the problem at work. You see the argument in your family. And you see sin right there. And you think, because I think the same thing at times, I'm tempted to, it's just better if I don't get involved, right? That's not my drama. I've got enough drama of my own. I don't need to get involved in that drama. And yet, that's not what Christians are called to do. It seems better to not get involved, to not speak up, just to mind our own business. But guys, here's the thing. When a wasted life and when an eternity devoid of any hope is on the line, Christians have to be the ones who speak up and speak truth because nobody else is. Everybody else is affirming the lies that they're hearing. So we have to speak up and to speak the truth to our neighbor in love. Look at the text with me. Verse 10. You could hear as we read through verse 17, and you can just kind of skim through it now. Do you notice any positive things here? I mean, if you look at it, really, there's, there's no positive attributes that are mentioned here. There's hardly a flicker of hope to be found. The condemnation on false teachers is deep and thorough. Peter doesn't pull any punches. So if you've been listening to teaching that doesn't fit with the whole counsel of God's word, then please understand that you're in danger of not just believing the lie, but spreading the lies. And so what Peter says has to cut to our hearts. Look at verse 10 and 11. The the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful... They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So false teachers, these people are arrogant. They're full of pride. And they have no problem speaking against people in authority and things in authority that are higher than them. Not just earthly authority. That's what the first part of 10 says. Not just earthly authority, but these other verses say Authority higher than them. Angels. Angels, what's their purpose? Do they have an agenda of their own? We'll just say it that way. They don't. Angels do what God tells them to do. We see that all through Scripture. God tells one to go, to do these things, to show up. Um, and they do it. And and they're in, they do various things. And you guys can think about the shepherds on the hillside at the birth of Christ, the, the myriad of angels there. Um, you can think of other angels in the Old Testament intervening in battle, like just an angel and tens of thousands of people are dead in a night. Just one angel. So Peter's saying what, if you read the scripture, you already know. Angels are higher. They're m- more powerful than we are as, or as, uh, as people. But they still only do what God commands. I think what Peter means here is that the righteous angels who are loyal to God, who have greater power than any man, even they don't dare to try to enact judgment on the angels that fell, on other heavenly beings. The the glorious ones is what Peter says. I think Jude verse 9, which we'll talk about a little later, kind of says this same thing. False teachers don't do this. False teachers don't hold back like angels who understand what God's will do. They're like fallen angels in that verse, the first part of verse 10 in the King James Version says that they walk after the flesh 
in the lust of uncleanness. These guys are immoral. False prophets, they're not afraid to speak out and to blaspheme people, especially even ones who are greater than them. Look at verse 12 and 13. It says, These like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, they'll also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're blots and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Heretics are like irrational animals. That's what the ESV says. The King James Version says brute beasts. Not, not something you want to be described as. Not a positive thing here. And Peter says in verse 13, he says that they revel in their deceptions. It means that they're proud of it. They're glad about deceiving people. They revel in it. It's, it's almost like a pleasure to them. They take joy in deceiving other people. But then he says, they themselves will be caught and destroyed like an irrational animal. Just like an animal that gets trapped in a trap and destroyed. That's what they do. That's what they are. They blaspheme about matters of which they're ignorant and they will be destroyed he says, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. I think that's an interesting word, wage, here. If you look it up in the Greek, it basically means a reward, good or bad. So what that means is you can earn a bad reward. I think you guys get where I'm going with this. Can you think of another scripture verse that talks about wages, especially in a negative connotation? Romans chapter 6 Verse 23, what does that say? For the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. So wages are something that you earn from your actions. So kids who are just starting to get paid for jobs, adults who've been doing this for a while, we understand wages. You go to work, you put in the time, you do your job, and you get the wage of what you agreed on when you started the job. Okay, that's not a complicated thing. You earn that wage. Well, Peter is saying here, and certainly Paul in Romans 6.23 are saying that you can earn stuff that isn't good too. In fact, all of what you do, apart from glorifying God, earns for you, piles up, Paul says in other places, stacks up the wrath of God. Think about that for a moment. People without Christ are piling up the wrath of God that will fall on them one day. You were there too. You are there too if you don't know Christ. But those of you who do, you were there too. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has raised us up with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so... He says, a wage, good or bad, here certainly bad, you earn it. You steal stuff and get caught, if it's big enough stuff, you go to prison. You can't, you can't blame other people for that, and we live in a society where people are trying to do that all the time. You can't blame somebody else. You earned it. You earned it. Mom and dads who, who discipline their kids with spankings, you're not wrong to do it. 
Your kid has earned that by their behavior and your discipline saves them from the wrath of God one day. <laughs> so, so <laughs> we were just disciplining our son, apparently. Uh, no one can stand before God one day, the day that they die, judgment day. No one can stand before God and claim he was unfair. No one can claim unfairness. You know why? Because the Bible tells us a man reaps what he sows. You reap what you sow. Unrighteousness earns something. It earns death. False teachers, though, they don't seem to care. They don't seem to care one bit. Verse, verse 13 says that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. What they should be ashamed about, they advertise for everybody. For everyone to see. The kinds of things that most people would do at nighttime to try to cover up, not let people see, these people celebrate in the middle of the day to their shame. They're self-deceived in believing that their wrongdoing is not going to catch up with them. They think that what they've done, they've gotten away with. There must not be a God, must not care what they do. And the crazy thing, the maybe scary thing about this, verse 13 says, is that these people are involved in the church. Did you read what it said? That while they feast with you, their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They are attending, in in that day, there were feasts, love feasts, other celebrations, uh, that were Jewish in nature and commanded of God in the Old Testament. They carried out still in the church there. And Peter's saying, these people that are bringing in false doctrine, they eat right next to you. They feast with you. They're lying about who they really are. They don't have the same view of God in reality. And they're proud of how deceptive that they are. What does Peter call them? Two words he uses, surprising words, in my mind, he says that there's spots and blemishes. It's surprising to me that Peter uses these words because Paul used very, very similar words when describing something very different in Ephesians chapter 5. He uses almost these exact same words to talk about the bride of Christ. Without spot or blemish, maybe your translation says wrinkle, Peter uses them, obviously, in very stark contrast to the way Paul uses them. These these people aren't just marked by spots or stains in their life. Peter says that they are stains. They are spots on the fabric of something bigger. The church. God's people. Their whole being is defined in terms of their sin here. Imagine for a moment if God looked at you And saw nothing but your sin. Maybe we don't want to think about that. Truth is, if you've never put your faith in Christ, that is what God sees. But, if you're covered by the righteousness of Christ, that's what God sees. Salvation is a sinner trusting that the death of Christ on the cross was for them what they deserved. And God transferred the righteousness of Christ onto a sinner. 
And now they're saved gloriously. So when the father looks at a heretic, a false teacher who glories in their sin and prides themselves on deceiving others, all he sees are spots and blemishes. But because of Christ, when God looks at a redeemed Christian, he sees his son without spot, without blemish. Praise be to God. Look at verse 14. Peter goes on. He says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. These people that Peter is describing are trained in ungodly things. It's not just that they accidentally stumbled into the practice of it. It's that they intentionally try to get better at it. They're always looking for ways to get ahead, even if it involves using people, even if it involves satisfying their own lusts at the expense of others. And it says that they're always looking for unsteady souls to seduce, to do the same thing. I think we've probably seen this played out in real life. A mischievous person, an ungodly person, they want somebody to do bad stuff with them, right? I think maybe an old phrase, misery loves company, maybe fits in here. They want people to come alongside of them and to join them in their sin. This is what peer pressure as a teenager or as an adult is based on. They want you to join in. And when you don't, you get made fun of. Ridiculed, cast aside, broken relationships. Peter says these people are accursed children because of the things that he's just described about them. They have no atonement for sin because they revel in their sin instead of forsaking it. They're accursed because they have not turned in repentance and been rescued from the curse of their sin. It keeps them in bondage still, as he'll say in verse 19 later. Verse 15 and 16, they go on. Peter uses another Old Testament illustration for us, specifically the one with the prophet Balaam and his donkey. Okay, this is Numbers chapters 22, like 22, 23, 24 in that realm. You could turn there, you don't have to, but that's where that story is found. Uh, these verses that say false teachers, they, he says that they know the right way. But forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. This is, this is Balaam. Considered a prophet of God. He heard from God. If you read that story, God clearly spoke. But he was, he was not a good prophet. He was a prophet that God used. He knew the right way. He knew the oracles of God. He spoke some of them himself. He's, he was learned and exposed to the truth. He knew the right way, but he had forsaken it and he'd gone another way. And in that story, Balaam was rebuked, not by another person like David was rebuked by Nathan. Not like that. He was rebuked by a donkey. If you've never read that story, go read it in Numbers 22 through 24 later today. It's a wild story. And in that text, it says... Uh, in fact, actually in there and in what Peter says about it, it says when Balaam would turn, would turn away from God, what did his donkey do? His donkey, in his rebuke, actually restrained, Peter says, his madness. 
And we're not talking about being angry here. We're talking about like not right thinking. His madness. The donkey restraint. How, how would you like for that to be a defining story in your life? I mean, we talk about donkeys. I know some folks. Greg, are your donkeys very smart? Probably not, right? They're mini donkeys, so they don't even have a chance. Um, their donkeys aren't known as being a very bright animal. And yet the donkey was teaching Balaam. Not a good thing for your life to be defined that way. But I see a truth that's kind of nestled in this story that we might not see immediately, and it's this. It's madness to live as if God doesn't exist. It's madness to live as if truth doesn't exist or doesn't matter. In reality, that's what the false teacher is building his life on, that God isn't there, that truth isn't real. Because see, in the story of Balaam, neighboring kings, one in particular, Balak, he wanted Balaam, he was going to bribe Balaam to come and curse Israel because he saw all these other people fall to Israel and he didn't want that to happen to his nation. And so he tried to bribe Balaam and Balaam was going to do it. And the donkey stopped him. And then, instead of cursing Israel, God used Balaam to bless Israel. Multiple times. And each time the, the opposing king is like, what are you doing? I'm paying you to do the opposite of this. And Balaam, you know, in maybe a moment of clarity says, how can I speak things besides what the Lord has said to me? I have to, is what he says. And so he, he blesses Israel. And in the process, we get one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says this, and right to this opposing king, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. So just like we see in the story of Jonah, God uses all kinds of people, even sometimes unwilling prophets, even sometimes dishonest and bad prophets. He uses them to accomplish his will and his purposes. But what Peter is saying is, guys, don't model your life after Balaam. Don't follow in that way. False teachers, he says, have followed in Balaam's way. In verse 17 Second Peter 2 says that they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Think about waterless springs for a moment with me. What is a spring? Kids, we maybe not know this because all of our water comes from a faucet or a bottle nowadays, right? But springs are places in the earth where water that's usually purified from going down through the earth comes back up out of the earth and it's cool and fresh. If you float some of the rivers down in southern Missouri, a lot of those are spring fed. That's why they're so clear and that's why they're usually cold kind of year round, which is great in the summertime. But these, these are waterless springs here. So imagine with me, imagine that you are out in a hot barren desert and you've been there for a long time. I mean, it wouldn't take just a few hours, certainly a day, without water in a hot, barren desert to feel like you're going to die. 
maybe even actually be on the verge of dying. So you're out there and you're wandering around and you come over a hill and you see in the distance an oasis, water. And so now your, your adrenaline gets going. You're kind of revived a little bit, right? And so you, you start making your way as fast as you can to this spring and you get there and you're like, man, it's not a mirage. There's a spring here and you go down to the spring and you reach your hands in and all you come out with are fistfuls of sand. Now what's happened? You saw the oasis that you thought was going to provide it for you and save your life. And when you get there, your hopes are dashed because it's not what you thought it was. This is what Peter is saying about false prophets. Because see, not, not only is your thirst not gone, but now you're without hope too. This, false prophets look good. It seems like what they're saying may give you relief because it sounds good. But in reality, there's no life in them. And it's just like he says, mists driven by storms. And maybe not this season, but I remember not too many years back, we've had droughts here. And I've talked with some of you all who farm and do cattle and things where you're really reliant on rain. And we've talked about, oh yeah, you know, we saw this rain cloud and our hopes got up, right? It's going to come over here. It's going to make it. And it goes, and we hear our neighbors calling, like, did you get the rain? We did. It's great. And we're like, no, we didn't. Thank you. But we see the rain clouds on the horizon being driven by a storm, and then all of a sudden a wind comes out, and it blows it away from our ground, from our animals. We see the rain cloud. We're like, yes, there's hope. But then it goes around us, and it doesn't provide what we'd hoped for. And not only is the ground still thirsty and our animals and us still thirsty, but now we're without hope. And Peter says, this is what false teachers bring and give. It looks like it's good. It sounds pleasing to some degree, but in reality, they disappoint time and time again because there's no life in them. For these kinds of people, Peter says, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Man, what a heartbreaking condemnation that is, isn't it? I can't think of too many other places in Scripture where it's this harsh and dark. The utter gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And we're going to finish this chapter next week. But what strikes me about these verses that we talked about this week is this. Peter says all of these things, these terrible and condemning things about people who lead others away from the truth in their words and lives. Wrong beliefs, wrong words, wrong lifestyle. And Peter's not describing the kind of person that we, we might expect, I think. Listen to what he says. And I've got these in your notes. You can look through the text. I've just kind of lined them out here. These people, false teachers, heretics, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They despise authority. They're blasphemers, like irrational animals, wrongdoers. They revel in their deceptions, their blots and blemishes. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed. They have gone astray. They're like waterless springs. They're mist driven by a storm. 
And that's just in a handful of verses. And what strikes me is how emphatic and forceful his illustrations are here. His language is here. Because we might be on board with this. We might get it better if Peter was describing like a murderer, right? That's a lot of condemnation and bad stuff. If he was describing a child molester, we could get on board with this. He's not. He's describing false teachers with this kind of language. This is a big deal. And I think this tells us that God thinks heresy is a big deal. False teaching is a big deal. We can't say, gosh, why is Peter getting all worked up about false teaching? Because God thinks it's a big deal. And it goes back to what I said earlier. I'll say it a different way. What you believe about God directs your life. And that's why it's such a big deal for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's why it's such a big deal for us. For those of you who don't know Jesus, that's why it's such a big deal. The gloom of utter darkness is reserved for those who believe and propagate false teaching. See, if you believe falsehoods, you don't have a clear understanding of who God is. You can't because you're believing lies. Well, if you don't know God, well, you, you're not going to care about how he says to live your life. And if you live your life for yourself and not for God, then you're just going to continue in sin. And if you continue in sin, you're not going to heaven. Do you see why this is such a big deal? Because eternity is at stake here. Eternity is on the line. This is why Peter, I think, has so much to say about false teachers and heretics. But he's not the only one. Flip over to Jude with me. I know you're going to, it's just a couple of books past Second Peter. I know you're going to see some of the similarities to what Peter has been saying here. Look at Jude, start with verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Just pause for a second. Crept in where? He's talking about in the church. Crept in. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Keep reading, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, but these blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all 
and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Pause there for a moment. Say it again. Truth matters. If you're not convinced of that, just read that. Read Jude again. Truth matters. Don't believe that doctrine is insignificant because doctrine directs your life. If you know the truth about God, about Jesus, about yourself, you know that you aren't going to get it right on your own. You know it. Deep down, you know it. You can't get it right on your own. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned. Everyone, save Jesus Christ, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 6.23 that we started quoting earlier said the wages of sin is death, but, that's another big conjunction there, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have to hear that today. There's a lot of negative stuff about false teachers here, and rightly so. We need to be warned. This is a warning, brothers and sisters. Not just to not believe this stuff, but to warn others with the same message. Don't believe this stuff. This is a warning, and we need to hear it, but there's good news here. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's free gift of eternal life can be yours today by believing in Jesus, by turning from sin, putting your trust in Him. So if you've been listening... Maybe you flip on the television to some cable news network. Maybe you hear stuff on the radio and you've heard what Peter said and what Jude said and now you're thinking, man, I don't know if what I've been hearing is true or not. Open your Bible. You can call one of us elders and we'd be happy to to investigate a teacher or a a sermon or an article or, or whatever. We'd love to evaluate those things and kind of work through that with you. But open your Bible. Try to understand what it is they're saying and what the Bible says about it. One of the things that John said last week is so key in all of this is that the Bible interprets the Bible. So use God's word to explain itself. It's it's the best way because that's the mind of God and God would explain himself better than we ever could. If you've been listening to someone that's not teaching the whole counsel of God, evaluate what the real truth is. Because it's easy and cults and other, maybe even denominations are built on just a few scriptures that are pulled out of context and aren't held up next to other scriptures that interpret it. And so we get all kinds of wild and different ideas of what scripture means. And we need to go back again to what Peter said is, no scripture is open to just someone's individual interpretation. You can't make it mean what you want it to mean. And yet so many people do that. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Know the truth because it's found in the word of God. And I would encourage you too in this, if you've known the right way, 
whether you've raised in church or you've heard it here, but you've just gone your own way. You've abandoned the truth and, and went away from it. Be reconciled back to Jesus today. Repent of the sin of believing heresy and come back to the truth that we elevate in God's word week in and week out, hopefully day by day in your own quiet time, to understand that God's word is sufficient. In fact, that's your last blank for your notes today is that God's word is sufficient to direct every area of your life. We believe that. We preach it to you all. I want to end with the end of Jude's letter which I hope is an encouragement to you as believers. We've Peter has just said it. We're going to get a little taste of it again next week. Jude has just said it. But then if you look at verse 17, Jude 17 through the end of the chapter, let's read that together. A call to persevere. Because brothers and sisters, it may not be a false teacher that has a big platform on a cable TV show. It may just be your coworker that's heard bad stuff that you need to refute with God's word. They're in danger of all the, being this person that Peter is describing here. We have to persevere. We have to be ready to speak the truth in love. And so Jude encourages us this way, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, Christian, this is you, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, if, if my friends are feeling like I am, they're feeling like what Jews says here, but kind of the opposite. I feel like I stumble in this. I feel like what I hear, sometimes it sounds right, but there's just something that sounds a little off. And so, Lord, I know we hear that kind of stuff frequently. We need discernment of the Spirit to help us understand these things, to help us see truth because it it matters. Truth is vital to not just what we believe, but how we live. It, 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 affect, it affects how we discipline our kids. It affects how we speak to our coworkers. It affects how we treat our spouses. It affects how we live this life. And so, God, I pray that you would help us keep us from stumbling. But it's not because of our effort. Lord, and Jude is so good in pointing this out to us. It's not because of our great effort or our great understanding, but it's because of God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To Him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. All of those things that false teachers would deny and minimize, Jesus holds. Jesus has. It's true of Him. And so, Lord, may we glorify His name, not just in word, but in deed as well, in how we live our lives. 
Father, thank you for the warning today. May we go and be truth tellers. In Christ's name I pray, amen.